And again, we are so blessed, sometimes we overlook this, but we are so blessed that God picked our time and our place in history that we can gather together and worship in peace and in safety this morning. We shouldn't ever, it's not always been true throughout history, it's certainly not true across the world today, and we don't want to take our freedom to worship for granted because there may come a time where we are put to the test. For some, that time has already come through fear, but we may really come to a test someday. Imagine, if you would, a real fear that by gathering here this morning, that at any moment, those doors in the back could burst open, and that armed men would come in, and they would physically drag you out. They would be beating you. Imagine that that wasn't enough, but that as they asked you, who else follows this Jesus that you proclaim, that they would then come to their homes and they would kick in the doors and they would drag fathers and mothers out, leaving the children alone. Then if the beatings weren't enough for you in prison to deny your faith, you would then be pulled in front of a panel of men who would sit and question you, and if you still proclaimed to follow Jesus Christ, they would order your execution publicly for everyone to watch. Now that is happening in some degree in some places today, but all of that has actually happened in history. And there was a man who was at the forefront of that movement in the first century. He was a fanatically religious man. He was looked up to. He was a man who would claim that he was doing God's work in trying to get rid of Christians and to get rid of the church. So I want you to consider this man as We read Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. Here we read the words of the Apostle Paul, testifying before King Agrippa. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And he was a major focal point of the book of Acts as well. We are so accustomed to looking at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, his example, what he said, that we forget who he was before God chose to save him on the road to Damascus. When we look at Paul, known as Saul, first, we're first introduced to him when Stephen, one of the church's first deacons, is drug out publicly and stoned to death just for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see this in Acts 7, 58, when we read, Then they cast him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. In Acts 1, we read that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And in verse 3, it says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house After house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now that is a horrifying scene if you really put yourself there, and it is something we've never seen in this 
comfy environment that we have in the Western church. And I bring all of this up, and we'll circle back to it at the end, because this morning we are going to run into a question in our text about whether we pray for those that we see as completely unsavable. And I want you to consider, as we do that, the man who was literally dragging people out of their homes and locking them up in the horrifying conditions of first century prisons. And I want you to remember that Paul was casting his vote for the execution of those who were faithful to Christ, and that he approved of the stoning of Stephen. I want you to remember all of those things because we are called to pray for the lost and to reach them with the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word this morning, please, by the work of your Spirit, illuminate the text to our hearts. Let it change us, let it shape us, let it guide us, Lord, as we see your glory reflected in your words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're going to be back in 1 John uh, chapter 5, verses 13 through 17 this morning. We are nearing the end. At the, verse of, at the end of verse 12, when we closed last week, John had really reached the end of his letter. He had reached the end of what he had to say to clearly demonstrate to his readers the difference between a true believer in Jesus Christ, one who is saved, one who is forgiven, one who is granted eternal life on the one hand, and on the other hand, a false believer, a person who may still utter the name Jesus and claim some belief, but who is actually destined for eternal punishment in hell. And he's done this, and he has laid that out because he doesn't want anybody to end up in that situation. All they need to do is repent and turn to Christ. They need to believe in him. And that is indeed why he wrote the letter to define what it means to believe. Now, in the verses, starting there from 13 to 21, what we see is a postscript to this letter. It is a PS at the end of the letter. And it's to give believers one more set of great assurances. He does this in five areas. He gives assurance of forgiveness and eternal life. He gives assurance of answered prayer, of triumph, over sin in a believer's life, that we should take comfort, that we are children of God and kept by Him, not just by our own will, and that Jesus is the Christ, and He is the eternal Son of God. We're only going to address the first two this week, and we'll close next week the letter of 1 John with the last three. So let's read our text. We're going to begin in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, right? He's writing to believers, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, He shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, one of the great things about the Apostle John is he typically tells us why he's writing. 
Right? We see that in the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 31. Near the end of John, we says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If John, the Gospel, was written first and foremost to non-believers, to those who need to know Christ. But then the gospel is for Christians each and every day because we live in that daily repentance. And if you do not know Jesus as your king, if you're not submitted to him, if he is not your savior, then start with the gospel of John. And I would say for any Christian, start with the gospel of John. Then you flip to this letter. And in verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So what you see when you take those two together is this natural progression of a conversation that we should have any time that we're talking about salvation, any time that we're talking about Christ with somebody. You ask a person if they're saved, and they say, yes, they are saved. Well, how, you might ask, and they say, I believe in Jesus. But that is never where it ends. It takes us to 1 John. We must ask then the further question, how do you know that you believe in Jesus? Truly, savingly believe. And the Holy Spirit has chosen to write to us through the pen of the Apostle John. And thus he wrote 1 John so that we can know that we truly believe in Jesus Christ in a saving way. He wrote These things, he says, he wrote these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. What are these things? They were the three tests, right? The three themes, three tests throughout 1 John. And he repeatedly circles around those things before bringing them all together, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 5, to show that these three are not standalone characteristics or tests of those who believe, but in fact, they are so intertwined in the fabric of a true believer's life, that they all must be present. And it's always amazing because you see people parse these a little bit. It's so difficult for us to apply sometimes because it peels back the layers of our heart and it exposes the things that we struggle with. These three themes we know well by now. They were the doctrinal test, the doctrinal test, a correct belief in the full testimony of Scripture, that Jesus is the Christ and He is the Son of God. You must know and you must believe in the person of Jesus, that He is the eternal Son of God in the flesh, truly God and truly man. And you must know and believe and trust in His work, His perfect obedience to the will of God, and His substitutionary death on the cross for the sins of all who will repent and believe in Him. And then you see the moral test that is spelled out which is complete submission and obedience to God, something that becomes just natural if you know and believe who Christ is. And further, the social test, the last one, which is really just an offshoot of obedience, because the social test is to love God and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, because they are children of God. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, just like us. They were bought with the precious blood of Jesus on that cross, and they are fellow children of God like us. So John writes at the beginning of the letter, if you were to jump back, back in John, 1 John 1.4, he actually has another statement about why he wrote the letter. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I want you to take from these two verses that he has bookended this letter with, the beginning and the end, that there is no greater joy felt in the heart of a Christian than to know with absolute certainty that you are saved, that you are saved, you are a child of God, you have the true gift of life now and for all eternity. And there is no greater joy than what we should experience as a Christian family than to know that somebody else has devoted their life to Jesus Christ to serve him and to love him. That is the greatest joy of all, because in that moment, we witness and we experience a miracle together, because we see one who is brought from spiritual death to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we embrace each other as members of a family. We see another child of God, somebody we will spend all of eternity with, And this joy is so broad that it is shared across the heavens. Jesus said in Luke 15.10, I tell you, there is joy before the angels. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That is the type of joy we must have. So after stating the purpose, now John really shifts to the true postscript. And he's going to do that starting by giving us the assurance that our prayers are heard. Verses 14 and 15 address our confidence in prayer, and verses 16 and 17 lay out our duty to pray for others. So we'll start with 14 and 15. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked. Now these verses contain a wonderful, wonderful promise. And that tends to be the side of the coin that everybody focuses on when they read the different prayer texts throughout Scripture, is the promise. But there's actually a major qualification in that promise as well. And there are in virtually all of these texts. It always seems to be our nature, though, to focus on the promise and then minimize, to the extent we can, the qualification. But let's start with the promise. If we ask anything, God hears us. What does that mean, that God hears us? I mean, God is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He's omnipotent. That means he's everywhere. He knows everything. And he is all-powerful. So, of course, he hears us. He's God. So, what does this tell us? What does it mean that says God hears us? He hears everything. Well, here you have to see that hearing in the context of the biblical passages on prayer, in almost every single case, It does not just mean hearing, it means that God answers, that God answers the prayers. He has an affinity, a love for his children, and he not only hears us, but he answers our prayers. And that's where it takes us to that second part in verse 15, that we love the promise, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. There are whole sermons based on yanking just that text out of Scripture, It's a blank check, right? It's in the present tense. It means if we do it right, we'll get what we want right now. It doesn't imply a future receipt. It says we'll have our requests right now. So it feeds right into our culture of instant gratification. We love this. And here we should just stop the sermon, and we should all turn around and get on our knees and start making our wish lists known to God, should we not? And that is unfortunately what is often taught in the name it, name it and claim it, kind of word faith types of false churches out there. 
and they attract thousands. And why wouldn't they? They promise you, those promises are never fulfilled because it's not true, but they promise you all the things that you want as a sinner. Contrary to what many try to claim, prayer is not our tool for manipulating God and forcing our will upon Him. Prayer is not our tool to reach out and convince God or force Him to do what we want. Prayer is actually our ultimate communion with God. It is a great privilege brought about simply by the sacrifice of Christ, who's our only mediator between God and man. It is our ultimate communion with God, and it is the means by which we subordinate our will to His will. Listen to how these promises typically read, and I'm going to pick just a couple here. John 15, 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. It is another great promise, but Jesus there describes only one category of people. He is only talking about true believers, those who remain in Christ, those who walk with Christ, and in whom his word, all of it, is the ultimate treasure and authority. And embedded in that promise is a converse. The only people who have the assurance that God will answer them, that he will hear their prayer, are actually believers who are walking in obedience to the word of God. That's it. God may, in his providence, answer the prayers of others. But there is absolutely no guarantee in Scripture that he will answer the prayers of unbelievers. Now, one of the hallmarks as you come to God in prayer if you are a believer, is that you come knowing that he is holy, that he is righteous, he is just, and yet you come to him knowing that he is merciful. That mercy was poured out on that cross. We come then confessing our sins because we don't walk in perfect obedience. And we rely on and we trust in Jesus to forgive us. Psalm 66, 18 says that if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, If I had loved the sin in my life, if I had given God part of my life but held on to that sin that I really like, he's not Lord of that part, that's kind of secret. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Translated a different way, he will not hear. He will not hear. He will not answer the prayer of somebody in that state. Now there are many verses that reinforce the truth that John has been writing to us in this letter, that a believer's sin is not going to result in lost salvation. We've said this before. If you are granted eternal life because you have submitted to and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's eternal. It's an oxymoron to say that you can have eternal life that's temporary, right? So you have eternal life, but what John has repeatedly reminded us is that you can have eternal life and you can have broken fellowship with God. In those moments of your life where you walk in sin. And we'll come to what we must do when we see that. But the first thing that we must be reminded of is that we must constantly be confessing our sins and seeking forgiveness through Christ. That is why the gospel is for believers every day. And it's why we've said before, 1 John 1.9 should be a text that you have memorized, that rings in your ears because it is the promise of everyday life For a believer, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And every one of us needs that daily. 
Another promise. John 14, verses 13 and 14. Jesus again promises, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This gets applied in some really, really odd ways. If you watch the false prophet channels on YouTube, they don't label themselves as false prophet channels. That's my term because they're not prophets and they are false. They, you will see this over and over. People just uttering the word Jesus constantly, like every third word in a prayer or what is masquerading as a prayer. But they treat it like a magic spell. And they rely on texts like this. Pray in Jesus' name and you'll get what you want. But that is not what praying in Jesus' name means. Praying in Jesus' name means being in full alignment with the person of Jesus. Every aspect of his nature, it means coming in full submission to his will. Desiring what he wants, not what you want, and ultimately conforming your desires to his purposes. These are prayers that are not designed to glorify us and make our lives easy. These are prayers and requests that are consistent with who Jesus is and that will bring him glory. That is what we're ultimately praying for. Jesus modeled this in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his arrest. He knew the horrors of humiliation that were coming. He knew what awaited for him on that cross. He knew he would bear the wrath of God against the sins of all those people who would believe in him for all time. And he prayed in Matthew 26, 39. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup, the cup of God's wrath, pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He did this three times in verse 42. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And that brings us full circle to where we're at in 1 John 5.14. It says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He answers us. He gives to us. But it's only when it's in accordance with his will. As a Christian, we should never want or expect God to act like some sort of a a grandfather or Santa Claus up in the sky who will fulfill every sinful wish that we have, every greedy wish desire that we have, every foolish aspiration that we have, anything that might lead to our harm spiritually as well as physically, or the harm of others, again, spiritually as well as physically, or any request that would tarnish the glory of God, or that would inhibit the proclamation of the gospel. And sometimes we don't know those things, but everything we ask must be in accordance with the will of God. Think not only of the the garden when Jesus models this prayer for us, but remember what the disciples ask Jesus back in Luke. Uh, They say to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. And that is where we then get the Lord's prayer as a model for that. And in Matthew 6.10, he gives us these words to show us a structure for what our prayer looks like. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven not ours. We easily get this mixed up. Uh, Often our prayers are more about us and more about what we feel like we need in that moment than they are about his church, the people around us, how we can minister to them. 
James 4.3 reminds us of this usual problem that we fall into with our prayers. And you could think of this as being written to people who say, I have read the promises of God. It says that if I come and I pray in his name or in accordance with his will, that he will give me and yet I have not received. What is wrong? James writes, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Not the words you're using. You ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, your own desires. You're not working to conform yourself to God. You see, the goal of our prayers should not be our own gratification. It must not be motivated by selfishness. The goal should always be to bring ourselves into conformity with Christ, to be more like Him, to be in alignment with God's will, to seek His glory in all that we do. And many times, Many times, that will come with pain and suffering and sacrifice. Think of the Apostle Paul. We know that he prayed out to Jesus three different times, he says, take this thorn away from me. He had a thorn in his flesh, an ailment, and that was not taken away. And he tells us that that wasn't taken away because in his weakness, God's strength was more evident to people. God's glory, God's purpose was achieved by that. And he accepted that, and he continued to operate in God's will. When the Lord is our delight, when Jesus is the center of all of our affections, all of our true loves, when we walk in obedience to him, God's desires begin to become our desires. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, that is a circular statement. When our desires are for God, our will is aligned. He hears our prayers because we want what he wants. We want to honor and glorify him. We can then have absolute confidence in our prayers as children of God. We won't always get it right. We know that. But by renewing our minds daily through his word, we will be conformed to the image of Christ. And we will love him and we will seek to do his will in our lives. And what is one major part of doing his will, of walking in obedience to God? John has written about it several times in this letter. It is a clear evidence of faith in Christ. 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us, right? He commanded us, love one another just as Christ loved us, and he died for his church. If we love each other, we need to be praying for each other. Prayer can't all be about us. It cannot lead to just complete self-absorption with our circumstances. Prayer comes with the responsibility to intercede for others, just as Christ sits at the Father's right hand interceding for us every day. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What a wonderful picture. And then we see God's word then flipping that and giving us that same responsibility for each other. 1 Timothy 2.1. First of all, then I urge that supplications, requests, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So having given us confidence that if we're praying in God's will, that he will hear us and answer us and honor those requests, John naturally shifts 
to what should be one of the main topics of our prayers. And that's what he hits in the next two verses. 1 John 5, 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, there is a wonderful promise right here that is tied to, that relates to what it means to be part of a Christian family. But I think when we read these verses, it's impossible to see the promise because we very quickly get bogged down in speculation about what is it? What is it? What is that sin that leads to death? What is that sin that leads to death? So remember, as we turn to this, there are some key rules for how you read your Bible and how you avoid needless and useless speculation. First, context matters. Context matters greatly. Remember the occasion for which John is writing this letter, the reason that he is writing to the church. He is writing to a church that is struggling to figure out how to deal with these false Christians. They are unsaved people, but they are still professing to be Christians. They've left the church. They no longer gather with the saints. They're on their own. And they often deny either the deity of Christ or they deny the humanity of Jesus. They can't embrace those things. And they deny fully the ultimate authority of Scripture, the witness, the testimony of the Holy Spirit to who Jesus Christ is. They rely instead on some emotional or spiritual feeling about Jesus. And then they claim to know God and walk with Him. That's the occasion. You have to keep that in mind as you turn to these texts. Second, you must remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. Always keep that in mind. All of God's word holds together. There are no conflicts in Scripture. It is perfect because God, the author of Scripture, is perfect. There are no conflicts. So where a text is difficult, look to what helps you understand it. Third, and this is just mine here. Those first two you'll find in any hermeneutics type study. The third, read carefully. Read carefully when you're confused. Look at who John is talking about. Are there two groups? Or is there one group of people? We'll come back to that. Now, if you do these things and you read this text, there are a few things that jump out that should be crystal clear that you should easily be able to dismiss as you hear them talked about. The first is, we are not talking here about major and minor sins. We're not talking about major and minor sins. All sin if not dealt with by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, will lead to eternal punishment in hell. There isn't a major and minor category. Sins have different, different consequences. God doesn't explain that fully, but we reap the just rewards for our acts in this life. But we're not talking about major and minor sins here. It's not about mortal or venial sins a doctrine the Roman Catholic Church created. It's not supported by this text. And there is no scriptural support anywhere for the seven deadly sins for which no forgiveness is available. You will not find that in Scripture, and that's not what this text is referring to. 
Look at verse 17 for clarification. It says, all wrongdoing is sin. All wrongdoing is sin. Everything outside the will of God, anything outside the boundaries that are set by God's holy word, even matters of our motives, right? When we, when we claim to be doing good things, our motives can turn those very good things into sin, right? Isaiah says that. All our good deeds are like filthy rags. All of that is sin, and all sin, the smallest white lie, all sin is deserving of eternal punishment, for it assaults the character of a holy, eternal creator, God. The wages of sin is death, all sin, not major sins, not minor sins, all sin, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But it gives us the promise at the end of Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So everyone has to turn to Christ for forgiveness of their sins. So that's not what John is talking about here. So, what is he talking about when he says that there is sin that leads to death? Well, he's also not talking about physical death. We don't actually know that. There are sins that will ultimately lead to physical death, but we would never know what those would be in a person's life. But more importantly, the text itself gives us that clue. He has just said that God will give life if we pray for a brother in sin. And this is clearly spiritual life. In Ephesians 2, when we read about the state of every unbeliever before we are saved by God, it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins before God saves us. Well, that doesn't mean that we're physically dead. We know that, right? That means we're spiritually dead, unable to see the truth, unable to come to Christ. And so what John is referring here when he's talking about death is to final spiritual death. And that final spiritual death arises from the willful unbelief and denial of Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God. A final rejection of Christ. This is what you saw with the Pharisees. When after listening to all of Jesus' teaching and watching his miracles that attested to the power of the Holy Spirit and the fact that he was the Son of God, they attributed his works to Satan. And Jesus said to them in Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. In Mark, he says, it will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. It will never be forgiven. We have explored that text in the past. Your ultimate denial of Jesus as Christ, as the Son of God, will not be forgiven. I thought of this as I watched an interview with a young college-age man this week, and he was saying to the interviewer, the interviewer had asked him, what do you think God will think of you when you arrive for judgment? And his response was, I think God will be super happy with me. Because I have done a lot of good things in my life. He's about 20. He denied Christ. That was very clear in the interview. God will not be pleased with the denial of his son. A final rejection of Christ will not be forgiven. You can look back to 1 John 2.22. Another clue to who he's talking about. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. But John tells us what combats that, what makes that impossible 
for a true believer to actually commit that sin. If you go back up a few verses, it's very clear that it is the Holy Spirit working within us that actually keeps us. And you cannot fall into this sin. 1 John 2.20 says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. We saw last week in 1 John 5.6 that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who testifies to the person, to the work of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit is truth. So what John is talking about here is the sin that leads to death, is the intentional, willful, open-eyed rejection of known truth, right? A rejection of God's testimony, the testimony of the Holy Spirit to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one who came to save, and that he is the Son of God, and that only by his person and only by his work, only through Jesus can one be forgiven, can one be saved for all eternity, Can you escape the wrath of God and be cloaked with his righteousness and join him forever? To be in that willful state of denial, one has fallen to the place where they love the darkness instead of the light. John 3.18 puts it this way, Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the sin that leads to death. And this is the judgment, the light, the Son of God has come into the world. And people loved the darkness. They loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Consequence, Jesus explains later. In John 8, 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is for all eternity. This is not about physical death. We will all die. Every one of us, whether you uh, walk with Christ in, in the best obedience that we can see in a Christian life, it's never perfect, but the best, whether you walk with Christ or whether you deny him every single day that you roll out of bed, you'll die. It's not about physical death. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed, one, appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And it is the denial of Christ, that is the sin that will lead to that final death. The second death, in the words of Revelation 21.8, because for the person who denies Christ, their names are not written in the book of life. And Revelation 20.15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Unbelief. Resolute, determined unbelief is the blasphemy of the Spirit. It is the sin that leads to death. So what are we to do? What are we to do as Christians? Are we to pray? Or are we not to pray for those who seem so lost to us and so determined to deny Christ? Well, here again, I want you to read the text carefully. John is not actually issuing a command to not pray. He's not commanding us to not pray for these people. What he is saying is we simply do not know who these people are. And God can save and does save those who we think are lost. But for those who are truly lost, where the decision has been made, he will not hear that prayer. He will not answer it. Nobody would have thought Saul was savable. When you read the Apostle Paul's own testimony and you put yourself in that position, nobody would have thought he was savable, that he would actually turn his life 
to Christ. I am guessing that if we were first century followers, living in fear of being arrested by him and put to death by men as he encouraged that outcome, many would not be on their knees praying daily for Paul's salvation. We might be praying for his death, which would be wrong. Certainly praying for our safety, but probably not his salvation. But he was saved. He was in resolute and complete denial of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God until his eyes were opened by God himself on the road to Damascus. But prior to that state, you would have determined that he was not savable. So what John is getting at is that the prayer for those who are determined to deny Christ, who blaspheme the Holy Spirit by denying his power and his witness to Jesus, for those people who are set in their ways and God has already made the determination, he will not answer your prayer. Do not be discouraged. It's not part of the command. He is warned in Hebrews 6.6 that it is impossible to save those who are determined to go to hell. It is impossible, it says, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him, holding God up to contempt. That's all a qualification to the promise that John is making in these verses. Because the promise that he's making is actually a beautiful promise. The promise is that God will grant life as He hears, as He answers our prayers for brothers and sisters in Christ. This is where reading carefully matters again. In verse 16, there are two different categories of people being talked about. He calls us, he commands us to pray for brothers, that is, Christians. To pray for Christians who are in sin. But he does not command us to pray for those who are determined to deny Jesus Christ. They are not Christians. This is akin to Jesus praying that high priestly prayer in John 17, 9, where he prays and He's talking to the Father, and he says, I am not praying for the world. The world meaning the lost. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. They are yours. That is who I'm praying for. So let's look again. 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. He's talking about believers. The promise of life is actually conditioned first and foremost on knowing who your brothers and sisters in Christ even are. The church helps with that, but that's not the defining characteristic. But you do have to know. But then we ask this question, what must we do if we see a fellow Christian sinning? What must we do? Not ignore it. That's actually our natural tendency. We just ignore it. It'll go away. It's not me, it's them. So we ignore it. That's what we do in the modern church too often. We have no zeal for the house of God. We have no passion for his honor and his glory and his word. So we ignore it. But look at the words used in the text. When you know a Christian in sinning, what must you do? You shall ask. It is a command. You shall ask. And this is why John has carved out the unbelievers, in this particular text. Because this is a command to do something specific with those you know are your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you love your brothers and sisters as you are called to do, 
You will seek their good, not only physically, which John has also addressed, but spiritually. You must intercede on their behalf. You must cry out to God that they will be brought to repentance and restoration in their fellowship with God. Now, realistically, what too often happens in the Christian church today? Do we do this? When we see a fellow Christian who sins, often someone who stops coming to church. But sometimes they're among us, and we know it, and we know they're in sin. Do we gather a group quietly together and fall to our knees and intercede on their behalf and cry out to God and say, please, God, give them life. Draw them back to you. Let them repent. Let them see the glory of your Son. I'll admit I've not been part of one of those prayer groups. I wish the answer were yes, that that's actually what we did. That is more what we're commanded to do. I think the real answer is that it often leads to our own sin, which the Bible warns us against. We either ignore the sin and bring dishonor upon God, upon Christ, upon His church, make the witness of His people weak and laughable to the world as hypocrites. We do that, or we actually approve of the sin. We will, we will compromise. We will say that person, you know, they profess faith. They're, they're really good. They just have this massive issue that everybody knows about. But we're not going to do anything about that. We don't want to we don't want to do anything, we will approve of that, either sort of implicitly or sometimes, in the worst case, actually directly. We don't want to be accused of being judgmental. All that horrifying word to the church of Christ that a Christian might actually hold to the word of God and have discernment given by God so that we can judge what's good and what's righteous and what's holy. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul tells us? too afraid of what the world has badged, judgmental. Or the final one, and this is a big one for us to watch out for, it leads to gossip. It leads to gossip. Gossip is a sin, but we are so prone to it. Listening to gossip is a sin, not stopping it, and gossiping is a sin. Even prayer requests themselves can quickly lead us down this path into gossip. I'm sure everybody has been part of this, whether you've thought about it or not. Something starts generically. Please pray for so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. They are having marriage difficulties. And that conversation, because of human curiosity and the desire to talk about other people, quickly devolves into what is couched in terms of, well, you must need all this information simply to pray for their marriage, but it is actually gossip, right? People start disclosing secrets that they know of or opinions on who's right, who's wrong, who's righteous, uh, whose sin was actually justified because of the other person's sin. Did you know that they did this? Did you know they did that? And talking about the past and the prayer for life. The prayer for life for that brother and sister was left long ago in the dust, all in favor of a really great story time, gossip. And we have to protect ourselves from that because the command is so clear. You must pray for a brother or sister in sin. Because if you know someone is a Christian and you know they're sinning, then you know that they need to repent, right? You can't repent for them. You you know that they need to confess their sins to the one who is faithful to forgive them 
of their sins and cleanse them of all unrighteousness. And that is Jesus Christ. Their fellowship with God, with his people, is broken. And why do we need to pray? Well, because often in the midst of this cycle, when the Christian is engaging in sin and slipping farther into it, that is the the time when they least want to turn and repent and admit their wrongdoing and come back to Christ. Either they can get stuck in a cycle of pleasure and shame, right? They seek pleasure in sin. Uh, When that is complete and it wears off, they know that they have sinned and they are dishonored, they are shamed, and because of their shame, they turn back to sin and they get stuck in that cycle. They need help to pull themselves out of that cycle. Or they make excuses for their sin. That's probably the most typical. It's someone else's fault. Someone else's fault. The devil made me do it. The devil never makes you do anything. You do it because you want to. The devil may tempt you. The devil doesn't make you do it. It's not the church's fault. I hear that frequently. It's the church's fault. No, it's your heart that's bitter. It's your heart that's bitter. You can't make it the church's fault. So what must we do? Pray. Pray. John says clearly, pray for them. And God promises to hear our prayer, to answer. In this, you see something. No Christian, no Christian is strong enough to be isolated, to be the commando, to be out on their own. We actually need each other. That is why we are called to physically gather to be present with each other, to know each other, to love each other, to care for one another. You are here, but many have bought into the world's lie that you can sit on your couch and watch a couple YouTube sermons. You won't find that supported in Scripture. We need each other. We need to be with each other. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers, Christians... If anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him to a, in a spirit of gentleness. Now, that is not pointing to the, some super Christian. It just means you who are walking in faith need to come alongside to pray, to deal with it, to confront it. But we get the same warning that we've been worried about. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted either by the sin that you're trying to help them deal with, or frankly, the temptation into gossip and other sins, slander. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And what a wonderful thing that we get in the letter of 1 John. Because he says if we do this, if we pray, that God will give him life. What does give him life mean? He's already saved, right? We're talking about Christians here that are falling into sin. This again, you need to remind yourself that John has dealt with the issue of believers who have eternal life and unbelievers who will suffer eternal damnation, but he has also constantly and consistently brought us back to the reality that it's not just eternal life, that eternal life starts today, and it starts right here in this life. There is life in Christ. He emphasized that in 1 John 3 too. He says, we are God's children now. But sin breaks the fellowship with God, and that fellowship must be restored to have the abundant life in Christ that he promised to God's children. 
Now, we spent more time on the exception because I think that's the more confusing part of this. So I want to circle back to that as we close. I just want to emphasize the point that it is an exception. It's a qualification of what God will respond to. The burden, the commandment he has given us is very clear. To pray for our brothers and sisters, to help them walk faithfully and expect them to pray for us and to confront us. Well, that's the tough part. It's really easy to give the advice. It's often hard to accept the advice. But we are not called to pour over Scripture and then try to look out in the world and find those exceptions. We want to pray for all Christians. And we do want to pray for the unsaved. I want you to consider the example of Peter. The example of the Apostle Peter. But we all know uh, that on that night that Jesus was arrested, Peter would completely fold just at the risk of a couple of servant girls asking him if he was a follower of Christ, the lowest people in society at that time. When he came under that pressure, he denied that he even knew Jesus. He swore an oath. He said, let curses fall upon my head if I am lying. I do not know him. I do not even know him. If the story ended right there, if you did not have any more information, wouldn't you not conclude that Peter had sinned unto death? He denied Christ. He denied he even knew him. And he knew better than anyone that Jesus was the Son of God, that life only comes through Christ, that you can only be forgiven and saved if you turn to him, repent, believe in him, follow him, submit to him. And he says, I didn't even know the guy. If the story ended there, did he not sin unto death? But he didn't die. We know how the story ends. Peter was a believer. He was a brother in Christ. He was an elder in the church. And there were prayers offered for him. And at the end of the Gospel of John, we see Jesus sweetly restore Peter into fellowship. And he would serve Christ filled with the Holy Spirit for the rest of his life. And his life would end being crucified upside down for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, he denies him to a servant girl. On the other, he suffers one of the most gruesome and painful deaths, unwilling to recount, recant his faith. That's how the story ends. Listen to what Jesus did, though, because this is the model for us. Jesus did not refuse to pray for Peter. He knew he would deny him. In Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, he says, Simon, Simon, that is Peter, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's the model for us. That is the prayer for one who is falling into sin. That is the confidence we must have, knowing that God answers the prayer. Jesus wasn't worried that that prayer would not be answered. He knew it would. He prayed for Peter's restoration. He prayed for Peter's strength once his faith was restored. And we have to do likewise. Because every sin is a terrible rebellion against God, no matter how minor we think it is in our culture. And true believers, we know, do not live in sin. We've seen that in 1 John. But we will fail. We will fail. We're not perfect. We are new creations in Christ. But while we live in the here and now, in this short life, we still walk in corruptible bodies. 
We will still sin. We can't reach perfection. And so we must continue to trust in the only one who can save. We turn to Jesus who suffered and died in our place and who is faithful to forgive if we will confess to him our sins, if we will trust him, if we will believe in him, if we will submit to him as Lord. But when we do that, we must never, ever lose sight of the fact that following Christ, being a Christian, is not an individual journey. It is not an individual journey. I am not, and none of you are, the super-Christian who exists as the exception to the testimony of Scripture. We are called into a family of God. There is no ability to thrive in your walk with Christ as an isolated individual, doing it on your own. The Bible doesn't support that. The modern trends do. God's word does not. You can never be absorbed with yourself. When God saves us by grace through faith in Jesus, you are part of a family, a new family, bought with the precious blood of Christ shed on that cross for you. And while we serve one another, while we know we must love one another sacrificially, we must pray for one another. Always, without ceasing, the Apostle Paul writes. And the beautiful thing is, we know that those prayers will be answered. He's given his promise. And God is trustworthy and always faithful to fulfill his promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we come to you with confidence. Lord, we come to you often with impure hearts, impure thoughts. Sometimes we can't even identify those in ourselves. We pray, Lord, that the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in us will continue to show us what we need to move away from and always shine a bright light upon your Son who we are called to move toward. Lord, let us be drawn to your word. Let us see your abundant and steadfast love all around us, the evidence of your power, the evidence of your mercy. Lord, we most of all are thankful that you have chosen this day and this time for us to live. You've given us the freedom not only to worship you, but to share openly the gospel, the good news that you sent your son to die for us, that he rose and he lives, and that he is our mediator and our intercessor. Father, these truths are too great for us to fully grasp. We can say the words. We can contemplate your glory. But Lord, help us see. Help us live it. Help us experience what it means to walk with Christ. Lord, shape our affections. Let us love him above all things. Let us desire to worship him above all things. Help us love one another, God. We know you have called us to do that. We can get in the way of ourselves. But God, we rely on your strength, your mercy, your love. For these things, we glorify you. and We praise you. We do pray in your son's name and knowing that it is by and through him. The curtain has been torn open, and we can approach you with confidence to hear our prayer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.